I'm Ben. I'm the pastor. Um, last I checked. And so uh, I'm going to proceed with the sermon. All right, that's what we're doing. We've been going through the book of Kings. Um, it's really two books, First and Second Kings, but uh, before they put the Bible in print, it was one long book, okay? And we are in chapter 11 this morning, and we'll, we'll go 11, verse 9 through 12, 15. And this is, if you remember last time, by the way, thanks to Jenna and Scott who preached for me last week. We were, I was, well, me and Heather both were supposed to be in Atlanta, but then one of our kids got sick, so she stayed behind, and I went by myself, which is lame, but I had to go anyway. Um, just to see our friends down there at the church um, in Atlanta and to just hang out with them because we just believe driving six hours is worth to see your friends. And so that's what we did and just hung out with them. And I preached there on Sunday and came back. It was a good time, but I did miss you, all right? Um, and so week before last, we were looking at Solomon. If you remember Solomon, the the great King Solomon, who eventually then becomes the not-so-great King Solomon. And he, he's full of ups and downs. He starts out great. He's being faithful to God and his commands, um, being the kind of king God wants him to be. He's full of wisdom. Uh, they prosper with all this uh, just wealth beyond imagination. And then Solomon, uh, his weaknesses catch up with him. His character problems catch up with him. And he goes from righteous-ish king to very not righteous king. He becomes idolatrous where he's actually building altars to and temples, believe it or not, to false gods and encouraging the worship of those false gods right there within, within sight of the temple he built for God. It's an insane turn that he takes. And things don't get better with his kids, okay? Um, so that's kind of the backdrop of where we're going to be this morning so, if you, so right towards the end of all of this, God says to Solomon, after he becomes an idolater, I think it's amazing that God speaks to him at all, but he does. And this is what he says in 1 Kings 11, 11 to 13. He says, therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So God's punishment to Solomon was, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. But God had made a promise to Solomon's dad, David, that his son would sit on the throne. So because God is the God of promise, and he keeps his promises. He says, I'm not going to take it from you. I'll take it from your son, but I won't take it all the way from your son. I'll leave one tribe of the 12 tribes with your son, and the rest will be taken away from him. All right, so that's where this is going to go. So how, I think it's fascinating how God does this. There's so many lessons to learn. I, I can't point them all out to you. I'm going to try not to because it's just a, the sermon would be all over the place. But it's really interesting how God pulls this off. He doesn't just go to Solomon's son and take the kingdom. He does it in a way that tells us things about who God is, all right? So we have this prophet named Ahijah. This is the beginning of a storyline in Kings of the prophets coming to the surface and God using them to speak to his nation. So he says, uh, 1 Kings eleven twenty-eight to 31 says this. The man Jeroboam, now this is going to get confusing. 
Let me just stop there with the names. We have Jeroboam with a J, and in a minute we'll have Rehoboam with an R. They are not the same person, okay? I will try my best not to flip-flop them as I'm talking, but if I do, just go with it, all right? They're just two different people, all right? So the man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Israel, or out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. When he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. So imagine this for a minute. Jeroboam is one of the enemies of Solomon. Because God raised up a bunch of enemies to, to give Solomon a hard time. He didn't take the kingdom from him, but he's going to make his life miserable. Right? Because up until this point, Solomon has enjoyed, has enjoyed peace because he's so wise, he's avoided having enemies, mostly because he's married women from all these places around. And so God raises up these enemies, one of which is Jeroboam. And then God sends his prophet to one of his enemies and says to him, hey, listen, I'm going to give you all but one tribe. You're going to be king. That's kind of, that's kind of messed up. I mean, God, you would, you're sending a prophet to my enemy to give it to him, not Jeroboam of all people. Why not somebody I like, somebody I wouldn't mind handing things over to? But this is God's judgment, right? You've got to keep your eye on those prophets. They're sneaky. They just might go down the road and talk to one of your enemies and hand the whole thing over to them. 1 Kings 11, 34 to 40, the story goes on. It says, Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I choose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. That's fascinating because God doesn't take the whole thing from him. That's the mercy and the grace of God. And I will take you, Jeroboam, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. There's the mercy of God again. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. Somehow this became public. And Solomon's answer was not to go, oh, and to repent. Man, I've, this is God's judgment. God told me he was going to do this. Now he's doing it. I should repent and soften my heart. Instead, no, he just doubles down on his wickedness and tries to kill the one that God told him he was going to give the kingdom to. He has not learned, has he? So Ahijah, a prophet of God, goes to one of Solomon's enemies within Israel and prophesies to him not only that God would take the ten tribes away from Solomon's son and give them to him, 
but he also uses the same promise, if you'll notice. The same exact word. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. We looked at the multiple times when God said to Solomon, if you will follow my commands and obey my statutes and walk in my ways and be faithful to me, I will bless you and you will stay on the throne forever, blah, 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 blah. If you don't, I will take the, th the throne away from you, blah, blah, blah. This is repeated, but not to Solomon or anyone in David's family. This promise is now moved and transplanted from David's line to Jeroboam, an enemy of David's family. That's astounding to me. For God is about to promise, and he will find somebody to do it. He will substitute us in and out whenever he needs to, but he's going to get it done. When he promises something, he does it no matter what. If I don't do what I'm called to do, God will find somebody to do it. So I might as well just get around to it, right? This is the same promise that we looked at a few weeks ago. The covenant promise remains unchanged. I love that too. It's unmodified. Just the king that will fulfill it has been swapped out for someone else with the same conditions. If you follow me, if you're faithful to me, if you do obey my commands and you walk in my ways and follow my rules, then I'll bless you. That is the thing that makes a good king a good king. It's not how smart he is or wise he is or incompetent he is. What makes the difference is does he follow Jesus? If he does, God will bless him. That's it. This is a principle with God. His promises will be fulfilled no matter what. Now that gives me some hope because that means I don't have to have it all together. I don't have to be the smartest. I don't have to be the best. I don't have to have the best plan. I just have to be faithful to God. And if I'm faithful to God, he's going to bless me. He's going to make it work. I don't know how. He's going to overcome my weaknesses and my mistakes by his blessing because I'm being faithful to him. But it's also chilling, isn't it? That God doesn't need me. Does that make you feel a little small? He's not going, oh, thank goodness we have Ben. He's on our team. Now we can get something done. That's one of the great lessons of ministry, by the way, is you do stuff long enough and you, you realize you're falling into doing a good job by accident. At least it feels like accident. And some of my worst sermons have had the most impact. And it, it, it keeps me awake at night. Like, does it even matter what I do? <laughs> like, does it, like, maybe I shouldn't spend so much time and effort on some of this stuff. Maybe I should just, because it doesn't seem to really matter in terms of the actual impact. Maybe I'm not that big of a deal. And it sort of disturbs you a little when God uses you to do things that you didn't even know you were doing. And you didn't know the thing that you just said had a massive impact on the person you were talking to. You thought it was some throwaway thing you just said. And it turns out it changed their life. And you go, maybe I'm not that big of a deal. And so there was Solomon walking around thinking it was his wisdom that got him where he was. Thinking it was all about him. And he was the big deal. Look what I have built. And then God says, nope, I'll tell you what. I'll take the exact same promise. I will carbon copy it give it to someone else and watch what I do. It's not about you. It's about me and my promise. Because God is a God of promises. 
All right, so then we have, we switch over, Solomon dies, and we have Rehoboam, all right, not Jeroboam. That's Rehoboam is Solomon's son, okay? Rehoboam is the new, new king, and he has inherited Solomon's problems. All those enemies, all that division that's been stirred up in Jerusalem is all now his problem. I, I, I don't envy him whatsoever. One of those problems is that Solomon forced his own people into labor for his many projects. We've seen that story a few times as we went along and followed his life. The way Solomon got the work done was he conscripted people into labor. He forced them to build and to work for large portions of their life. And that apparently had gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. And they were sick of it. Jeroboam returns from exile in Egypt where he ran and hid because Solomon was trying to kill him. He comes back, and this time he's, got, he's gathered support from all these disgruntled people in Israel who have been the beast of burden for Solomon their entire life. And finally Solomon is dead, and they're grateful, and they're hoping the next guy's going to be better. Who feels that way around election time? You've been abusing us, and finally you're out of the White House. It's time for a change. Maybe the next guy will not treat us this way. And so we go and we ask, you, sir, will you please treat us well? The last guy was awful. Will you ease our burden? And this is exactly what happens. Jeroboam, the guy who's been prophesied to be the next king, the enemy of Solomon comes with all these people who were disgruntled to ask Rehoboam this question. Here's what he says. 1 Kings 12, 4 through 11 says, speaking for the people, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. We'll serve you voluntarily. Just don't force it on us. He said to them, go away for three days and come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel from the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Wise counsel. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men. Don't listen to those young men. <laughs> Can I hear an amen? Don't listen to them. Here's what the young men told him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put it on us? And the young men who had grown up with him, they were his buddies. These were his drinking buddies. They said, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lightened it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Double down on the abuse. Punish them for even asking the question. What do you think Rehoboam did? Whose counsel did he follow? It wasn't the old man. 
Verse 15 says, So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Rehoboam goes to the people and he says, no, I'm going to double down, double your burden. Get to work. And they basically hated him for it. They despised him. They had met their ability, the end of their ability to submit to that abuse and they just wouldn't take it anymore. So just like Ahijah's prophecy to Jeroboam, here again we see a tension between God's sovereign direction of history and the human responsibility for sinful and foolish actions. Rehoboam is acting like a fool, and he's, at, he's being abusive. He's listening to bad counsel. But it's not just that. He's actually treating people in a way that God specifically commanded kings not to do, just like his father Solomon did. So it's sinful, it's foolish, and it's incompetent. Let's just look at it on a pure human level. The old men didn't tell them, treat them well because that's the right thing to do. They said, treat them well because if you do, they'll be won over and they'll see your servants forever. You actually get more out of them if you're nice to them. It wasn't for godly reasons that they gave him that counsel. He can't even see the practical usefulness of recognizing that the people are angry and they're sick of being treated this way and he needs to treat them nicer because they're going to rebel. He can't even do that. He is incompetent, he is foolish, and he is sinful. He has all the things we don't want in a king, and he has all the power in the world on top of that. But what this says, verse 15 says, it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. What do we do with that information? We have God sending his prophet to give an enemy a promise that's supposed to only belong to David. Sovereignly sending a guy to stir up division in the nation. And then we have this verse that says that even Rehoboam's like foolishness and sinfulness was directed by the turn of affairs directed by God himself. Does that mess with you a little bit? There's a real tension there. The sovereignty of God and the evil deeds of men that is directly negatively impacting the people that God has chosen. And all of it as a judgment against the people and against the king. This is a mystery, okay? Because God doesn't do evil. You have to draw a line there. God doesn't do evil. God's not doing, he's not making uh, Rehoboam sin. But at the same, so Rehoboam is responsible. He's clearly responsible here for his bad choices. God is not pleased with Rehoboam. He is not saying, you have done my will. You have good job, Rehoboam, blowing up the whole nation. At the same time, somehow, so over all of those evil choices, God is still in it. He's still doing something. As Spurgeon explained it, God had nothing, quote, God had nothing to do with the sin or the folly, but in some way which we can never explain, in a mysterious way in which we are to believe without hesitation, God was in it all. 
Isn't this the story of your life? We live in this weird, mysterious tension all the time. You do a dumb thing. Well, I was talking about myself. I do a dumb thing. No one here would do a dumb thing. It's just me, right? I do a dumb thing, a foolish thing, a sinful thing, a wicked thing. I, make a, I listen to the wrong counsel, whatever it is, and I take my life in a really dumb direction. And then God, I find out somewhere along the line that that somehow fit in with God's plan for me. That somehow I'm still on plan A and not on plan C or D or E or F or 8.4-5. Right? I am on plan A all along. And I go, God, how is it that you could fold in my foolish, wicked choices into your will and still get done what you wanted to get done? I don't know. I mean, don't ask me. I don't look at me like I know. I don't know, but he does. This is what we see here. God worked his plan. He said he was going to do it. He said it was going to happen. Then he sent his prophet to stir up trouble, as they do, to blow up the nation, to mess it all up. And if you're living in Israel at this time, you are sitting there going, God, what, what have you done? You're blaming the king. You're blaming the Democrats or whoever. You're blaming somebody, but what you're not doing probably is going, oh, the Lord is in control. This is God's sovereign plan. Because from that perspective, we have the blessed gift of perspective in these scriptures. We have the the writer of Kings telling us explicitly this, these were a turn of events brought about by the Lord. We have that wonderful sentence in the middle to give us a perspective like, this looks bad, but Rehoboam's not in control. Jeroboam's not in control. God's in control. And it looks like a mess, but it's not really a mess because God's in control. But I kind of feel like if you were one of the people who were saying, please ease the yoke on my back you wouldn't have that same perspective. So one of the things that gets me about this is that reminds me of is Acts 4, when you have the apostles praying, and they say in there, verse 27 to 30, that the, the evil act of killing Jesus was predestined, they were events predestined by God to take place. So the mystery of how can the sovereignty of God and the three evil choices of mankind exist in the same space comes to a head, not over your life, you're not that big of a deal, but over the life of Christ. The intersecting point of those two things is right over the cross. Because you have the most heinous, there has been never been, there's never been a more wicked thing done by the hands of mankind than the torture and killing of God himself on the cross. Yet if God had not ordained that to happen, you and I would not be here. So it's not a frustrating mystery, it's a glorious one.
If you recall in verse 4, chapter 12, what they, they use this metaphor of a yoke. Not an egg yolk. There's no L. It's a yoke. If you don't know what a yoke is, if you didn't grow up in Mesopotamia, um, a yoke is a, a, a bar made of wood, sometimes iron, that would bind an animal, usually an ox, to a burden to carry. Sometimes you'd connect multiples together to pull something heavy. Sometimes you would just use it as a place to put something heavy on the back of the animal. That's a yoke. It binds the animal to a burden for it to carry because the human beings don't want to carry it, right? That's a yoke. And it's a common metaphor in the Old Testament to refer to bondage to sin and bondage in slavery to invading powers. You put us under a, a yoke of slavery or a yoke of bondage to sin, they talked about. And so here, the people go to Rehoboam and they say, your, your father's yoke was heavy. Will you ease our yoke, ease our burden? And he says, no, he doubles down on it because he's a wicked human ruler. But Jesus also talked about a yoke, if you remember. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think if you put that scripture, that statement from Jesus in the context of kings, which was the context in which Jesus spoke, different time, same culture, and all their, their hero was David and Solomon. They knew this story. <clears throat> so Jesus, instead of, when we come to him and say, my, I've been working hard, I'm heavy laden, I have a heavy yoke around my neck, Jesus, will you take it from me? Jesus doesn't double down on the yoke and add to the burden the way the Pharisees did. The Pharisees would say to somebody who was heavy laden, he would add to their burden, Jesus said. People come to you for relief and you make it worse. You add to their burden, you send them away, send them away, burdened more than when they came to you. Jesus turns around and says, but my yoke is easy and light. I always picture this like a, um, like a big ox with a yoke around its neck. And, you know, you've got the bar going across, and there's the space where the ox is, and there's the empty space where the other animal's supposed to go, and that's my spot. And I'm like a little furry kitten hanging in the yoke. The feet can't touch the ground. Saying, look at me, all the weight I'm pulling. Right? And the ox is just plodding along, carrying 100% of the weight, and I'm over there dangling, weak and ridiculously powerless to lift the weight. That's the yoke of Christ. It is an easy and light burden. Jesus is a king who does not come with a heavy yoke. He's also not a king that has no yoke, by the way. There is a yoke. There is an expectation from God. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he said, be perfect as my Father is perfect. Does that frustrate you a little? Or you just skip over that verse? 
He must be talking about somebody else. There must be some theological loophole for me to jump through. Well, that can't be the expectation. It is. Be perfect as my Father is perfect. You say, well, that sounds like a heavy yoke. It is a heavy yoke, and it's not one you have to carry. Jesus carries it. This is the yoke that Jesus carried himself. It was so heavy that only he could carry it. He carried it for us as us in our place. The perfection demanded by the Father was accomplished by the Son, and then the Spirit comes in place of the Son and does what in you? He's making you perfect. So you grow from the little dangling kitten to an ox that can carry his own weight. That's amazing. You get declared to be, the kitten is declared to be an ox before he's an ox. And it grows stronger and stronger. I should have said a baby ox. It would have made my metaphor make more sense. But the picture of a kitten just makes me laugh. So that's what we're going with. All right. All of this, all of it came from the sovereign will of God in the middle of evil and foolish choices of mankind. It's a beautiful mystery. So Rehoboam saw the people of God as beasts of burden that existed to fulfill his every dream and whim. That is a situation we are all familiar with. Every one of us, we know that feeling. You've had a boss who treated you that way. It's a universal experience of all human beings. You've had political leaders treat you that way. You've had the tax man treat you that way. You're not a human, you're a number. Give me your money. You feel a little violated, don't you? And you're right. And we see king after king, president after president come through, roll in and say, with new promises, I will not treat you like a beast of burden. I will be the one, I'll be the man of the people. I will treat you with kindness and generosity. And then we find out, oh, well, you're not. You're just like the other ones. You get some power and you do you do evil, wicked things, and you say it's for our good over and over and over and over again. And it's a story of every nation on the planet throughout all of time. People with power abuse people who are weaker. And you can look at that, I think, and get a little despondent because there's so much brokenness in the world because of that, right? Like everywhere you look, no matter what country you look at, what corner of the world you look at, you see that dynamic playing out and the kind of destruction that comes from that. And you can become hopeless and despondent. Like, what, what good is it? What are we supposed to do? Don't make the mistake of thinking that wicked, selfish, foolish, or incompetent leadership means that God has lifted his hand. God never lifts his hand. He's always in control. God is mysteriously sovereign over even the wicked, free choices of tyrants and kings. So you can relax. Everything's under control. Doesn't look like it. It's absolutely nuts. There's no country you can flee to where it's going to be better. Trust me. It just is what it is. It's human nature. Galatians 5.1 says, Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I love that. Don't submit to any yoke but Christ. 
any belief system, any yoke, any system of hope or promise or escape other than Christ is a lie. It doesn't matter what it is. It's a lie. Don't buy into the way of the world, but remain clear that you serve a king who instead of using us as his beast of burden, he came down and carried the burden that we could not. That is the king we serve. That is the king we proclaim to the world. Are you sick of this? What would happen if we said, hey, to the world, instead of saying, hey, are you sick of having terrible leadership? Vote for my guy. What if instead of saying that, we said, are you tired of being treated like a beast of burden? Trust Jesus. He's not that way. He's a king that carries your burden and gives you an easy light yoke instead of a heavy one. He gets in the mud with you, and he does, the, he does the labor for you. That's the king we serve. We live and we serve a different kingdom altogether, and we don't say the answers are found in a better king. We say the answer is found in the righteous king, the only righteous king, and that's where my hope is. Wouldn't you like to have hope there too? Well, that's a better gospel, don't you think? So church, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. In Galatians, Paul was talking to people who were being ensnared by a legalistic like, system of adding to the gospel. You can please God and, and be a really good Christian if you'll eat this way and get circumcised and do these other things. But there's all kinds of different false yokes out there, right? They're all a lie. So that's my challenge to you this morning. Get your eyes on Jesus and get yoked in like a dangling kitten. I still like that picture. Dangling there, feeling really proud of yourself, all the work you're getting done. But it's not you. So why don't we stand up and pray and ask God to do this in our hearts. And then we'll worship together. God, first I pray for those here who maybe struggle with their own life and the events of their life feeling like somehow you weren't sovereign over all of it in some way. And they've come to believe that life is just a random set of events. Or maybe that they're just like a piece of gum stuck on the shoe of the world just uh, being carried here and there by powerful people in their life that have just pushed them around knocked them around and life is just randomly awful God I pray right now that you would show them in this grand story of wicked kings doing terrible things that they would see in the midst of that somehow you were over it all working it all together for your purpose and for the good of Israel and the good of the kingdom God I pray that they would see that same hand over their own life this morning God none of us have an answer for how all that works together a profound mystery, but God, I pray that for those here who are discouraged about their life this morning, that they would see that it is a beautiful mystery. 
So God, all of us together right now come to the cross where this mystery, the beauty of it is just made, is put on display greater than any other place in history. And we thank you, God, that you have given us a light yoke, that we are yoked to Christ. We are bound to him. We are connected to him. And he is the one that carries our burden. He is the one that lightens our load. He is the one that carries our sin for us, has paid for it once and for all. God, we are free to run and to push and to work for the kingdom of God because we are free and we are yoked to Christ. Where he goes, we go. God, I pray that we would have hope in that every other yoke in the world that is offered to us, to us, God, that we would reject it wholesale without hesitation. That we would only be yoked to Christ. 